Welcome to On Carrying a Concern, where we share stories of friends in service, and also some reflections and lessons from the road. I'm Khaled Keith Perry. I'm Christina Keith Perry. And this show is produced as a ministry under the care of Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with the financial support of New England Yearly Meetings Legacy Gift Fund, the Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund, and the support of Salem Quarterly Meeting. This week, we're talking with Melody Brazo, who is a member of Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting, about her experience over the last 30 years of being part of the Religious Society of Friends. She talks about leadings and ministry and has some really interesting insight into the role that privilege plays. We're going to talk uh, about support committees, and we're going to close out with the crown jewel of things to not talk about. Money. Part of what we think is important is for people to uh, reflect on some of these these stories. So we're doing some of that here, but we really want to encourage you to listen to these episodes in in your community and your context. Conversations among each other about what you're hearing. All the stuff that you hear me say that you think is totally wrong um, or right or or maybe just like a little bit off, but not so bad. Talk to each other, invite each other into intimacy, share how this sits with you or not, and let us know how that's going. Um, there's resources. All the transcripts of these episodes are on the website, ocacshow.org. You can contact us there. You can contact us there uh, at OCAC Show on Twitter. You can also visit our Facebook page. On Caring a Concern. Yeah. Uh, point is... If you've got questions, ask us. Um, if you have the inkling to talk to other people, meet each other on the Facebook page, somehow connect to people in your quarter, ask your clerk somehow. If you want to have conversations as a result of this, awesome. Without further ado, let's listen to what Melody has for us. Share how it is you came to Quakers. Is there a moment you know? Yeah, so um, when I was in high school, uh, which was in the 1960s, um, I was raised in a pretty conservative, suburbanish town outside of New York City, and um, my parents were pretty conservative, and um, I got really involved, but also inspired by the anti-war movement, which at the time was the anti-Vietnam War movement, and um, the people in my town who were doing the really cool work were Quakers. And my parents were like, you should not go anywhere near those evil Quakers. They're a cult. No kidding. So, yeah. So, Literally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, we don't want you even going any place near them. So I would sneak off to do anti-war work with the Quakers, which, you know, like, other, I have other friends who spent their teenage years getting high and drunk, right? right. I was, like, doing anti-war work. I mean, I was doing other stuff, too, but... Um, <laughs> Like, so, just to be clear. Right, right. But so that was some of what I did. And so that was my first connection with Quakers. And I I uh, was really not in into religion, though. So the part about God, like, I just had to bracket that. Because I liked these people. I liked what they were doing. And I just couldn't have the conversations about religion. Uh-huh. So now, can we back that up? What yeah. was your experience in religious life for, for so I had been raised um, so my mom uh, is a vocalist and she uh, sang in whatever church would hire her when I was growing up so I spent a lot of time in various congregational churches 
but never in the town I lived in. And I think, and then my father was really a very vehement atheist who, uh, although he was a conservative, and I'm sure he didn't know where this came from, he really believed that religion was the opiate of the masses. Now, if you had ever been able to tell him that that was Karl Marx who said that, he would have like died a thousand deaths. But, but anyway, he, um, he was like really like only fools believe in God. And my mother totally believed in God and that like fit right into their relationship. Um, so I didn't like, first of all, I didn't think I did believe in God the way they believed in, you know, the way she, my mother and her mother and, you know, some of those relatives believed in God. I didn't feel any connection to the churches I went to as a kid because there, there was, was nobody, work, right, right, yeah. Um, and the people were really nice to me, but it was, yes, it was like going to work. And so I had just decided also by the time I got to be a teenager that there were so many awful things happening in the world. If there was really a God that had control over everything, these things wouldn't be happening. So clearly there was no God. So, um, so that was the context I took with me to these Quakers yeah. who, for a lot of complicated reasons, didn't really try to have any other conversation with me. And so I just showed up to do the anti-war work and, and that worked for all of us just and, fine. And you were a teen. I was a teen, high school right. Age. Yes, I was high school age. I was probably like junior, senior in high school then. Wow. And then I went away to college and then I came out and then, you know, like lots of other stuff intervened. And when I moved to Boston in about 1980, the, person that I got involved with and um, have spent the rest of my life with had been raised as a Quaker. So we started going to Beacon Hill meeting and I felt like I had, like I had always been a Quaker. I just hadn't really known it. You know, uh, I had shed some of my, some of my disbelief. I think I, I spent my first bunch of years going to Quaker meeting, being really clear about what I didn't believe and not very clear about what I did believe. And <laughs> I could be very eloquent and, and like vehement about what I didn't believe. And every now and then some weighty friend would say, but what do you believe? And I would be kind of stumped. But that was really helpful, you know, to have to sort of so like... You, so, you act, so people have said that to you? Yes. Really people, interesting. People, um, so uh, we... We, we went to Beacon Hill for a while, then we went to Cambridge meeting for a while, then we finally landed in Fresh Pond. But what was consistent through all of that was what is now FLGBTQC, but was FLGC at that time, Friends for Lesbian and Gay Concerns. There, that's where I learned how to be a Quaker. That's where I learned how to clerk a really good meeting. That's where I learned what discernment really feels like, looks like, and is. And there but, were and these are the national gatherings. Yes. yes, and there were people there who would say to me, "So, but what do you believe?" And and then like want to stick around and listen, and you know that was incredibly helpful and growth producing for yeah. me. So there was a long time where I considered that my home meeting, which was problematic because it's not a meeting and it only happens twice a year. But yeah. it was the only place I felt at home. Mm -hmm. And, and that's interesting. So I just want to test them here. You felt at home, but part of what home meant is people were challenging you? No, part of what home meant was that, yes, people challenged me, but also there was this kind of acceptance and kind of like this, like I didn't have to prove that we had a right to exist. And so 
we would go to FLGC and that was our community and everybody who showed up was welcomed mm-hmm. in in my experience. Now I can see now that actually everybody who showed up probably wasn't welcomed, but it felt like that at the time to me because I was white and I was educated and I was upper middle class and all those other things. So yeah. 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 That's really interesting. So your um, emotional or, or spiritual or psychological experience of kind of being at Beacon Hill kind of seriously for the first time was like, oh, I'm a Quaker. Yeah. There's just kind of a recognition that this is that. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. It was like... Even though you weren't sure what you were for, it yes. still felt right. Yes, it did. Um, partly because there were other people in the meeting who were in that same place. Mm-hmm. Partly because that meeting was pretty welcoming to, well, it was really welcoming to gay men, and it was welcoming-ish to lesbians. Back in 1980, there was not the sense there is now that gay men and lesbians and transgender people, we were all in it together. There was definitely these divisions. So, but yes, there was just, I just remember this, like, really clear sense that this, and, and, Maybe the bar was really low, but for whatever reason, I felt like, yeah, these people, more than any other people I have ever been any place with, these people are like a spiritual community I could stay with. And the other thing was that going to meeting, it was the first time I ever really articulated for myself that I had had a spiritual life all along. It just didn't look like what it was like the spiritual life that was presented to me. Mm -hmm. So I started to identify all these experiences that I had had that were like really spiritual, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't been able to name them because I had this really narrow Mm -hmm. picture. So that was another piece of it for me. And so when you, I I don't know if you can put yourself back to that moment, but when you were kind of early on in this process of kind of your own Quaker um, identity development or awareness or something like that, Um, And you found yourself kind of thinking, okay, so what do I think is going on here? Mm -hmm. Or what do I I believe? Mm -hmm. Do you remember like what, I'm just assuming that there's an evolution of of things because that's how people are. What what were some of those early questions that you, you had? So one of the, well, one of the early questions was if, if I don't believe that there is a being up there who is directing everything that happens, can I, can I be a Quaker? Do I have a spiritual life if that's not what I believe? And if that's not what I believe, then what do I believe? And how do I explain this sense I have that this is a community of people who are seeking something and I could be part of it? Yeah. So all of that... It took me probably years to articulate all those questions, but those were, that's sort of the progression of the questions. And I remember early on at a retreat somewhere, and I don't don't even remember if we're like when or where this was, but I remember we were sitting in a circle and we were all taking turns. I think we were all taking turns saying what what we thought the divine or spirit or God or whatever we named it, what was it? 
I remember having this like sort of burst of revelation that it was like, that for me, the metaphor was like all the layers there are between the core of the earth and the ground that we see. And it wasn't about like going outwards. It was about going inwards and that whatever I thought of as God or divine energy was that molten core. And then there were all these layers between me and that. Now, when I talk about that, I think, well, yeah, so, you know, yeah, that was a good image. But at the time that felt so like revelatory because it was so not the material or the picture I had been given um, up until then. So, yeah, so it's interesting to think back like... So that's interesting. So it's like, so whether it had been done explicitly or not, it was something like, this is what God is. It fits between this and this. There's a narrow band of what God is. God is a white guy. He's up in the sky. He has long white hair. I mean, there were pictures in the Bible I was given when I was in third grade. There were pictures of God and God was a white man, old. Jesus was a younger white man with brown hair. I mean, it's like... Yeah. And so, if that that didn't work for you, you, you were wrong yes right. yes i was wrong i might be going to hell all sorts of other things right right yeah and so that's really interesting so but for you so for many people that that's a, a, a fairly common story but their response to it is that well then show off on the whole thing mm-hmm. I, i'm never going back i'm not interested but you somehow found your way into a different understanding of the divine and a different kind of practice and and, and came to a different kind of faith instead of trying to jettison right. the whole thing I think there is lots in my life where there are just lots of places where the picture I was given about how things were going to work was wrong. So I had a lot of experience already with thinking, oh, well, that doesn't work for me. And not that it was that easy, but, um, you know, I mean, I was raised to think that I didn't even really need to think about a career because all a woman needed was have some kind of work she could fall back on if god forbid something happens so when i figured out that i was a lesbian that was like a big picture shift so i think having experiences like that made me more able to look at a spiritual experience and say okay that picture didn't work for me what else i don't hear in that story you having a particularly strong or or maybe at all drive or need to be religious that wasn't what that was it wasn't like oh, i got to figure out how to maintain no. my faith somehow no it it, it kind of happened in spite of you yes absolutely I, I had no need to be religious i didn't think i would ever be religious no one could have been more surprised than i was when i kept going back to quaker meeting um and my uh, parents persisted in thinking it was a cult for a really long time. My mom, you know, way after we had kids, would say things to me like, you need to be careful of those Quakers, you know. And um, she's kind of come around now. She's come to meeting a few times. She thinks it's weird, but she comes. But I go to church with her. and She's an Episcopal at the moment, and they say that creed every week, and I think that's pretty weird. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that when Melody talks about coming to Friends, her initial experiences were of a group of people who essentially were 
being faithful to their call to to being peacemakers during the Vietnam War. And she doesn't have a language that talks about her conception of what the divine is. She just knows that what these people are doing feels right. And then later, when she and her partner start worshiping at Beacon Hill meeting, she again says, this feels like home or I've always been a Quaker. It's about this feeling of what's right before the language to describe, you know, what it is that she's experiencing. Right. And I also think what's interesting about the way that um, Melody narrates it is that the the language was, yes, this is home, this feels right. But it was also the fact that um, part of what being at home meant is there were people pushing her. That home wasn't just a pat on the head and a cupcake, uh, pa- uh, patting on the head and a cupcake, maybe also. Uh, but but part of what it was, at least for her, was, so what do you believe? And I think that that's a very interesting kind of note to, to make. Right. Well, and I heard that the that questioning around what do you believe, not as, I mean, I guess it did push her and challenge her a bit, but also as invitational. It wasn't just, she wasn't asked to um, exposit on her beliefs, but she was part of a circle of people who were sharing their experiences and beliefs together. Right. It was invitational as opposed to kind of uh, confrontational. That's right. That's the. Yeah. And I think also, you know, part of part of what what is uh, I know I resonate with um, Melody's story is that there was no intent to become religious. Right. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a religious person. Let me find a community. Aha. The, the Quakers are good. Um, you kind of she fell back into it. And that's certainly not everyone's story, but it is for, for me. Um, and I so I resonate with that. The, 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 the like no desire to become religious and kind of defaulting into it and then realizing um, over the course of kind of years of practice that you ended up somewhere you never would have been intended. I think there's a there's something very uh, Quakerly about that kind of experimentation, or or it seems to me that way. No, I think that's right. I I too resonate with it. I I think that in my own life I was doing maybe m- more targeted spiritual seeking, visiting different kinds of spiritual communities. And what is interesting is that I found the religious society of friends, not as part of that targeted seeking, but because my best friend had died and she was part of a Quaker meeting and I went to her memorial. And then I kept going back. And when I walked into that memorial, I would not have imagined that it, what I was walking into was something that would change my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, that listening, it's almost as if the kind of that listening practice, which is so central to so much of what uh, the practice of friends is, is kind of can be in place before you have any of the other kind of rationale as to why we listen. I mean, that listening practice and being willing to be open to what we might talk about as continuing revelation or the, the still small voice, that can be in place before you have any name for it. Right? And I think Mel- Melody says that too. Oh, oh, totally. And I even... I made a note in my notebook about how I felt like her own journey really highlighted continuing revelation. She um, didn't accept what was given to her as true. She had a sense that there was something, um, I won't say deeper, but something else. Yeah. And, and, and willing to search for it and, and wait for it and name it 
and also be open to that changing. Yeah. And I think the the particulars of the way that Melody has been kind of reflective in her life are, are really um, kind of a useful touchstone or, or might be a useful touchstone for folks, right? That her rejection of the sense of God as a being that has agency, like the ability to decide, um, and very specifically kind of a white male being. Um, so she rejects not only the whiteness and the maleness of God, but also the kind of the, the sense of uh, God as a divine subject or agent. This is like a person who can make decisions. She rejects that. Um, and nonetheless is uh, wants to affirm a kind of spiritual sense of energy or flow that she identifies with God. I think many people who reject a sense of God as a subject or a being and kind of replace it with a process or a sense of kind of becoming or, or power or energy or something will often kind of say they don't believe in God. And, and for, for her, um, it's, it's interesting to say that she's rejected kind of what might be considered kind of orthodox senses of what it is that the kind of Christian God is um, historically, but also continues to kind of uh, be interested in some of those Christian texts while recognizing that her own position on that is different than than it maybe it is for kind of classical, I don't know, theological or or church perspectives. Exactly, and I'm I I wonder if it's also that not that she has just rejected certainly she has rejected the white male God and the white male Jesus, which many people. It's depicted in art, so so it's it it has a lineage to it. But she has held on to the term God. She hasn't let go of that, and she's given it meaning. And I think we'll hear her talk about. She's also um, given a relate has a relationship with that thing that she calls God or divine energy. You've already kind of shared some pieces of the story about how there were kind of um, emerging knowings or things mm-hmm. that kind of grew as opposed to just kind of like you inherited or received mm-hmm. or something like that. And so I'm wondering um, how you would describe what a leading is. Like, how do you understand what a leading is? Well, or how does it feel? Also, I mean, any ways of talking about that? So. I probably describe it differently every time I talk about it, but I today I would describe it as this persistent opportunity that just kind of keeps presenting itself. And the difference between me now and me, say, 30 years ago, is that I look for those opportunities now, and they had to come kind of slap me in the head mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. So for me... Uh, because I'm looking for them, I think it's not like I experience it as this force from outside hands me something. It's more like I'm drawn to some place or some person or some experience. And then as I step into that, I feel the 
I feel more in sync with whatever divine energy there is. And that sense that I am in that flow is part of what makes me know that that's a leading, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, um, do, uh, this may be a silly question, but you have experienced a leading then? Do you feel like that's something that's happened to you? Yes. And I, um, so the, the first time that I, what I think of as like the first time that really happened was, um, uh, probably, I don't know, probably about 30 years ago. And I was sitting on the screen porch with a friend and we were talking about racism and how my experience with trying to sort of help people see their way more clearly to some kind of equity around lesbian and gay people felt very similar to the work that needed to happen around race. And this friend said, you should do that work. That sounds like a leading. And I thought, huh? First I thought, who, me? And then I thought, leading? No. Um, But it kept coming back. You know, the opportunity to do that work, the people who would say, you should do it, the people who I would have a conversation with and they would say, oh, that's been really helpful. You should have this conversation with so-and-so. And so so that work kept growing. And the more I did it, even when I made mistakes, the more I felt like I was being drawn towards it. Now, do you, do you, you said maybe five minutes ago, you now seek out those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that there's been a change kind of, uh, is, it, is the difference you or is the difference kind of like the world or, or oh, God? Well, I, I, the, I, the difference there is, well, the world's different for sure. I'm different for sure. I don't think that thing that I might call God or divine energy is different. I think my ability to seek it is way different. Mm -hmm. And I think there are unfortunately so many opportunities in the world Uh to do the work of real building equity. Uh I I feel like uh, that is often where my leadings are. Uh Although, you know, sometimes I just have a leading to like go talk to a specific person at a specific time for Uh no reason. You know, Uh I mean, like, I, I think once, once for me anyway, once I'm in a place of like taking a moment to sort of check in with myself and my surroundings and feel that energy, surprising things happen. So now this is very interesting to me. You just said, and I just want to make sure it wasn't just happenstance, but uh-huh. it was intentional. You just said your ability to seek it out has gotten better. You uh-huh. think people can get better yes, at it? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I do. I think... My ability to do it has been greatly enhanced by, first of all, having a daily practice of really sitting in prayer, which sometimes for me is like seeking something or imploring for something. But sometimes it's just like trying to sit in the flow of something that's bigger than me and more than me. 
But doing that on a really regular basis has made me more able to do that in the moment when I'm like looking for something. And so this is the part I can't talk about at work all the time, but like uh, a lot of the work that I do, even when it's just meeting with somebody, I pray before I do it. Not in the sort of down on my knees, asking God for something way, but in the, like, I'm going to take a little bit of time to sit here and really feel centered and really feel like Mm -hmm. I am a conduit for something more than me to Mm -hmm. come through. Mm -hmm. So Now, can you talk about that experience or feeling, uh, the kind of pre-meeting prayer and uh, compare or contrast it with what happens in a meeting for worship? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, yes. So, the difference for me is about being alone doing it or being in a group of people who are doing it. So in meeting for worship, particularly when the meeting feels really gathered, I feel like there's a whole room full of people who are all doing that same thing, who are all sort of trying to be a conduit for something more than the individual. Mm-hmm. And that, it, it, I don't know, it's like it increases the mm-hmm. flow. Doing that by myself, it's not like it's different than meeting for worship. It's not like, it's not like what I do is so different from what I do in meeting for worship. Mm-hmm. It's that there are more people doing it. Mm-hmm. And when I do it by myself... That's still what I'm trying to do, and I'm trying to stay in that place when I do my work, particularly because I think it's important. A lot of the work I do, which is about helping other people open themselves to something bigger than they are, if I can get in the way of that, if if I just think it's Melody doing the work, uh-huh. you know. So, um, so it's really helpful in me to take that sense of being the conduit for something larger. Yeah. So you've said several times, it sounds like it's important to you that, that this something else, um, that's larger than you, that, um, kind of draws you in or, or that the, the thing that, whatever it is uh-huh. that makes the leading happen, uh-huh. whatever that divine energy is. That you listen and pay attention to mm-hmm. that. Um, how, how do you know when something is a leading that really comes from that kind of good source versus, like, I want to eat cake every day. Right, right. That's a persistent feeling, too. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> I don't know about you and cake, but I'm uh-huh. just like, you know, how do we know right, like something right. I want to do versus whatever it is, this is a test of a leading. So... Sometimes I, I think I, I I think I don't know, which is why I feel like it's really important to test those leadings with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a support committee, but I also just have some really good friends who who I can go to and say, you know, I, I have the sense that this is happening, or I might be led to do blah blah blah, you know. So some so so for some things there's that right for the it's Thursday I should eat, eat a piece of cake I just 
a lot, a lot of times I just do the best I can. Like, you know, I don't know. And I don't know if I always get it right. Sometimes I feel like the confirmation that I was well led comes from the reception I get when I'm doing my work. You know, I, I see how what I say or do or have planned in a workshop, I see how it lands on the people who are there. And that's some real confirmation for me. And, uh, I, I do think over time I've gotten better at sorting out what's just eating cake and what's like a real leading, but I don't think I always know. And, and do, you, do you think you've ever gotten it wrong? Yeah. 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 Um, I think there are, there are times when I've gotten it wrong. There are times when I've gotten it partially right. There are times when I got it right but didn't choose to act on it and then had to sit with what it felt like to know I could have done something and I didn't. And what does that feel like? Pretty crappy. Pretty, like, disappointing and, like, deflating and not... It's not horrible. It's just... It's, like, just disappointing, you know? Sometimes I have just felt like... I just don't have the energy. You know, I'm just too tired. Somebody else should do this. And then... Uh, in retrospect, I can see exactly what I could have done and it wouldn't have been so hard and I should have done it, you know? Yeah. So I think it's interesting that um, you kind of immediately went to uh, up the response of other people being an important part of you mm-hmm. testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you said testing the leading, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's the kind of the mm-hmm. only quicker language for it. This will be very simple maybe, but why is it that having other people be part of that process is useful? Be, well, for me, it's not like I don't do my own discernment first, but um, having other people be part of it is important because I do feel like whatever we call God uh-huh. or that divine thing there is is way bigger than any one of us. And so it is useful to have more than one person interpreting it. And I also am really aware of the fact that my particular understanding of how everything in the world works is very influenced by my particular spot in the world and my experience. And so in order to know, in order to know, like, if I'm, if I'm responding to what I hear or feel in the most useful way, it's really helpful to have people who have a different set of experiences than me. Mm-hmm. Have there ever been times where you were um, wrestling with something and trying to figure out kind of what the right move was or what the next move was? when you felt like you came out of interaction with other people heading a different direction than when you went in? Yes. Yeah. So it's not always just confirmation. No, no, it's not. I'm trying to think of a good example that I want to have out on the internet forever. (laughs) Well, so one example um, that I can give you of that is when my wife's parents got old, they had been 
involved in meetings. They had like been members of meetings. They had started meetings. They had been like really Quaker and they got really isolated and they were no longer attending a meeting, but there was a meeting in the town that they lived in. And they also had gotten really angry at us for being out and ruining their good name. And so we went to the meeting in their town and we said, we need help. And the meeting said, okay, we'll give you a clearance committee. And so we met with this committee and our question was, we don't know how to respond in a loving but clear, firm way because what we've been told is Melody should stay in Massachusetts and never come to the state again. So so we definitely didn't go into that with any agenda other than like we need help. And um, we were both really open to like what guidance could the meeting give us. Uh-huh. And, and the cool thing was they weren't people we knew. There was one person in that meeting that we actually knew and the rest of the people were just other Quakers. Uh-huh. Turned out there were a couple of people who knew her parents and who went to visit them and who um, I think weren't terribly well received and and came back and met with us again and said, you know, we think there's actually not a whole lot you can do to repair this. And all of that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And all of that uh, definitely felt like we were being led together. We were being led to some people who could help us carry something that was too heavy for us to carry by ourselves. And then they they kept carrying it for us. I'm really attracted to the way that she describes a leading as, for her today, a persistent opportunity that continues to present itself and um, then follows up with the fact that now she seeks out those opportunities versus her of 30 years ago would have been sort of slapped uh, in the head with those opportunities. And I think about the ways in which I, I have heard friends talk about that if you're listening even a little bit, those opportunities are gonna are gonna be there and you can choose to, I think as Melody might say, get into the flow of it and and follow them or to be um, hit with a cosmic two by four of God to knock you into the flow. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the interesting balance that, that, that a position like uh, Melody's kind of gives us is the necessity to say, um, we know that if it's really just about opportunities to serve, there's an infinite amount of them, Right. The world has so many issues. There's so much work to do. It can be totally overwhelming. It doesn't strike me. I mean, I guess she's not here for us to confirm this with, but it doesn't strike me that when she says opportunity, what she means is a, a something that could be done, right? That, because there's an infinite amount of work that needs to be done in the world. And anywhere we turn, there's something that could be done, an opportunity to serve. Um so then the balance, it seems to me, is between recognizing that there's kind of an infinite amount of like work to be done that we could be doing uh, and balancing that with the kind of what is the work that is yours to do. And 
I think she kind of means the work that's yours to do is the opportunity as opposed to kind of that infinite sea of darkness that can be addressed. Oh, exactly. I'm I'm glad you clarified that. That's That was the understanding I was working with. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a real challenge, right? Because if we just kind of open up the newspaper or click through our, you know, Twitter feed, um, man, any one of those things could be, you could do something and you could get kind of like choice fatigue. Like, what do I do today to save the world? And, 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 and so, you know, you figure out what you can do for the moment to kind of do your little part of saving the world. And then that's that. And she seems to be calling out for a kind of seeking out of what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, and then that raises the question of, um, are you, do you just think it's what you're supposed to be doing because of the kind of culture and community you've surrounded yourself with? You know, how do you know for real? And I think, I mean, for me, I don't know how it is for you. This is just kind of like where we have to proceed in, in faith or, or experiment experience with a community that I don't know as if there's a real concrete way of knowing for sure that this is for us in a kind of divine sense of um, maybe what might be called gospel order or something, or whether it's just what we feel like doing. But by bringing a community in, in the very least, uh, we're, we're certainly removing it from our own intentions or just attentions alone, and we're asking for accountability into the work. We're asking for people to ask us to kind of hold tight, not just to the work, but also to the deepening of our spiritual selves while we do the work. And that's not a foolproof guarantee that the work is part of gospel order or some kind of divine flow, but I think it increases the likelihood that that might be what we're doing as opposed to just randomly deciding to do things or just going on our own gut. I think it's significant that when she named her first experience of identifying a leading for her and in in that work that she was call, being called into, it wasn't an idea that she had. It was sitting in conversation with someone else who noticed and said to her, you should be doing that work, and which was then subsequently confirmed by other people who said, you should be doing this work, or the way that you did this was very valuable. So both the, the naming from other people and the kind of confirmation, she talks later about the that confirmation of the rightness of it often has to do with how it lands on people. And I, I read that as, as the fruits of, of the leading um, th- that really other people are integral to testing that for her. Yeah. And in my experience too, for myself. And I think this kind of goes back to kind of some of these issues that she's also raised around um, power and privilege, kind of race, gender, sexuality, that if, You've surrounded yourself with people that are just like you, and then you've asked them to answer the question around, am I doing what's right? But they have perspectives that are largely shaped by the things that are shaped like you have been shaped. Um, we're, we're running the risk that we're kind of in an echo chamber. And so um, part of the reason to then have a community around you that is diverse in a number of ways is to be able to kind of hear how it is that um, as she says, the divine energy is working in their lives so they can help you see how it is that God is at work from a perspective that isn't just yours. And, and it seems to me that this, at least the way the melody thinks about it, points towards the necessity to kind of address issues of 
of power within meetings, not simply because it's a good idea in some kind of political or social categorization, but because living in communities that are more diversely populated um, and yet equally kind of connected to one another, striving for kind of justice or, or the peaceable reign of God also is a thing that we should be doing for the sake of our spiritual lives, that we may hear better when our communities are more diverse, not just because it's a good thing to do, because it's a good thing to do, it's the right thing to do. The world is worse off for kind of uh, unacknowledged abuses of power. And there's a religious and spiritual reason to want to be in community with people and seek out people to like be made family with, not just the people you default to because they're in your neighborhood or look like you. A couple of things come up for me as I hear you reflect that. One of them is the way that Lloyd Lee Wilson from North Carolina Yearly Meeting Conservative talks about the covenant community and that the covenant community is the group of people who are drawn together by God. They're not the group of people that we might naturally encircle ourselves with who make us comfortable. The covenant community is that group of people who is really um, called together and, and may include people that we don't necessarily want to, um, quote unquote, hang out with, but being in community with them is important for our spiritual lives. I also think that sometimes the people you do want to hang out with may be an impediment to your spiritual life. Right. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I mean, the laboring for justice or the laboring for kind of the way that the reign of God might want the peaceable world to be isn't always going to be something that you would prefer. Right. Culturally, normatively, it might not sound or feel the way that you're used to sounding or feeling. And the, and it seems to me as if the test isn't, is this comfortable to me? But is does this seem, um, in the old language, rightly ordered? Does this seem like what is being called out? Well, and it, it feels like she's describing discernment. The, the process of discernment is to look, is to sift and to, to look at something from many angles. But when she says that, that God or divine energy is bigger than any one of us, and so to be able to listen or um, to live into perhaps God's vision, it requires more than just one of us to to create a sculpture of what that vision is for now. And it, it's, then we live into that and it shifts in the, in the doing, in the living. I'm also struck, and, and this also relates to trust, about the way that she and Joanna were willing to come to a Quaker meeting in a city that wasn't their own and to ask for a clearness committee for help with an issue that was bigger than them, for something that they couldn't carry. And that the friends in this meeting were not only willing to sit with them in discernment to follow up with the with her parents and then to return to say, there's not really anything you can do, so we'll carry this for you. Um, that I, I, that is very notable about the ways that we carry this work for each other and that um, not only is does ministry 
or, or leading sort of grow out of faithful community, but it is also held by the entire community. It's just, it's not just one person's thing. Yeah. And I think there are a couple of ways to approach this I mean, kind of metaphorically, right? So I, I often will talk about this uh, kind of the, the tending or supporting for ministry as if um, you imagine that the person who is um, kind of carrying the ministry has a potted plant. And there are several reasons why you might want to help take care of that potted plant. You might want to take care of that potted plant because you know the person who has that plant likes it. I think that's generally not what we want to encourage. One another reason to care for that potted plant is because you think it's a good thing to have things grow and have more life. Mm -hmm. But secondarily to that, you happen to know the person who's caring for that plant loves having there be more life. And so you're thrilled that they're thrilled. And I think it really changes how we approach it. Now, in both instances, the community is helping tend to the life that is you're carrying. In neither instance is the life that you're carrying the same thing as you. Right. So I go to my meeting to say, can you help me with my parents? Part of the reason that people might say yes is because they would like to help me, specifically my person with my issue. I don't necessarily think that's bad, but I also don't think it's the same thing as saying, we'll say yes to helping figure out what next steps are you are there are for you. We'll say yes to helping you with whatever the next steps are and trying to discern what those steps might be because we think that a community should come together to do this thing and help support growth in the life of the spirit. That may benefit you, but our first and primary reason for coming to the table and saying yes isn't to help you feel better, but because we think that this is how community comes together. Now, those are maybe a little artificially separated. Maybe they're, they're kind of similar things, just saw, seen from a different angle. But I think that that's also an important part, at least the way I think about it. So in shorthand, it's the difference between saying, this is my ministry, Melody's ministry, Melody's potted plant, versus this is the ministry I'm caring for, and I'd like you to help me tend to it. Help me versus help me help it grow. Melody seems to acknowledge that we all have different gifts that can be useful and that it's important to recognize that we all ha have different potted plants that we're carrying and that we need help tending them hmm. in community. It, it may be that right now her potted plant is, is work around racial justice and, and equity um, it's no less important than the work of folks who keep the meeting house open and clean and ready to receive people every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think her understanding, or it feels to me like it, it, it's around the, that we're, we're helping each other tend these plants because the, the fruit that they produce is ultimately makes the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes me, that way that you just said that makes me wonder kind of like what would happen if people had uh, anchor committees or, or support committees or committees for the oversight of ministry, whatever they get variously called um, for, for opening meeting. I mean, it, right. If, if that's the idea that kind of whatever it is that we do can be entered into kind of in a ministerial way, what would it look like and how might it, 
challenge or deepen our kind of communal deepening if we had people to hold us accountable to tasks like that. Right. And I wonder, as you say that, this occurs to me, so I'm I'm sort of experimenting and saying out loud, I wonder if in in this way we've we've created the model of having these committees of care and accountability to support people in and to support the tending of ministries because we have laid down, we have given up the practice of constantly listening with each other for how God is calling us in our lives. We have we are not in the practice of being in community with each other in such a way that we would ask questions over the dinner table or the potluck table or on our way to fetch water at the at the well with each other about you know where is god moving you today and if we were more regularly in community with each other and could provide that sort of peer support and naming which seems to echo in Melody's story about she was having a conversation and it was a peer who said, you should really do that. Um, could we do that kind of work in community if we had that intention and practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get nervous around romanticizing a moment when Quakers like always just kind of lived in a pure moment of questioning. I'm not sure we were ever really that. However, I do think that that is something to which we might aspire more intensely. I think that's right. And I also don't want to lose the piece that Melody lifted up about having a daily practice, a daily practice of prayer, or as she said, just sitting in the flow of that which is bigger than her. Um, And doing it individually and also doing it together in community to be in that intentional flow and listening, constantly listening. Woven through kind of all, all all that we've been talking about is, I think, this kind of a parallel track where we sometimes get really caught up around language sometimes, and we stop mm-hmm. not talking about experience. But part of the reason we're doing this project is just to try and give some flesh to some language that can be challenging for folks. And so one of the things I think that would be useful to hear your perspective on is um, what you think it is that ministry is among friends. Um, and, and when you think about that word, to the extent that you ever do, like what does that mean to you? I've had a really interesting journey with the word because uh, along with a whole lot of other words that come from religion, I initially had a really negative reaction to it. Um, it felt like ministry, like the whole idea was like a way to set some people apart as better than other people. I, I use the word now because I think it conveys something I've never found another word to convey, which is I think ministry is the, I I think it's a verb. It's like, I I don't really, it's like the difference between seeing the work and seeing the person who does the work. The ministry is the work and the ministry is the work of making that, mysterious divine energy and presence more accessible in the world Mm -hmm. and I think that that activity is possible and available to any person I would love to see lots and lots of people 
take that up. So that's that's how I think about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, 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 gosh, I'm forgetting his name. Bill Tabor from Ohio. Uh, um, do you know that his pamphlet Prophetic Stream? Mm-hmm. Uh, he says as a prophet of to discover the law, live into the law, and then share the law. Right. Right. And that, I just heard you kind of saying yeah. those kind of things is that um, and I, it's interesting. I, I I say it very similar to to the way you do, and I say that the actual understanding of, of gospel as good news is where the life is for me. Right. It's like I don't want you to do this stuff just for fun. Right. I want you to do it because on the other side of it is joy. Right. 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 Um, and there's so much in the work that I feel really called to, the work of building equity. Yeah. There is so much that people see as like work we have to do because that'll make us better people or it's about giving something up, but it'll be worth it in the end. And I like, it can't be about that. It has to be about making yourself holy and joyfully more. What are some of the ways you think that language around ministry or ideas around ministry do go awry? specifically within yeah. our tradition. So within Quakers, I think one of the things that happens is that people think they they see the support of ministry as something like a popularity contest. Like, um, And I've seen this happen in our meeting, I have to say. You know, that there, there are people who feel like, oh, that person gets a support committee, but what about the rest of us what makes that person so special and I think that's one place where it goes awry and I think part of that is thinking about the person instead of the work Um, and and in and then when you think about the person instead of the work things go awry yes yes and I I mean I, I see that in in the world at large too that people people get really identified with their work and then their ego gets really involved in it and then when things don't go the way they want them to, they are personally wounded. Boy, it's not like that never happens to me, but I, I, I see the problem with that. Like, um, to the extent that my work is good and fruitful, it's not me, you know? And I do the work, and someone else wouldn't do it exactly the way I do, but there are many people who can do the work. Yeah. So... Um, let me see if I get this. So you would say to that person, you know, what makes them so special? And you say, nothing makes them special. Right. Or they're special exactly the way you are. Right, right. right. There is something special about them. It's this possibility of the, that we all have this right. capacity to respond to bring more life into the world. Yes, yes. But that is special. Yes, that is special. And how... What makes them special is the particular way that they do it, which would be different than the particular way you would do it, and maybe the work that you would be called to is different, but that's the specialness. Everyone has that. Uh-huh. So now I'll get into the weeds with this one just to see, because it seems like you're at least thought through this. So in the first couple generations mm-hmm. of Friends, um, the Barclay ends up writing the apology. And one of the things that he says in there about ministry, he's tr- mostly he's writing to, to kind of defend against all the other people who think we're just total loons, right? But one of the things that he does say is he says, 
the possibility of ministry is universal. Mm-hmm. However, it is just practically or functionally the case that some folks are called to more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you agree? You agree with that? Or, or you're nodding? I see. Um, yeah. So I'm nodding because yes, I know he says that. And, <laughs> um, I'm nodding because. So you see the issue there, right? Yeah, I do, and I think, I think like, like everybody comes with different different gifts and talents. So, so yes, some people are called to some things more than other people are called to those particular things because they're called to some other thing. I think that one of the places we get really hung up is that the world values some things so much more than others. I often, um, I often wonder, for instance, about what it would have been like if there were as many Quaker women who had left behind writings about Quakerism as there were men. Like, would we have a different view? Because I see, I see uh, the things that women do now and always have done as way less valued. And so it's no less ministry in my opinion, Um, but it doesn't get labeled as ministry the same way, you know? So this is a question of like categorization, like what are the actions that people count as ministry and kind of in a historic way where we would pretty much be talking about vocal ministry. Right, right. Historically. Right. The way you think about it is anything that kind of brings more life and yes intentionally yes yes. More life yes. yes so yes vocal ministry absolutely is a kind of ministry and there are so many other many other kinds you know the the person who showed up every week to make sure the meeting house was clean mm-hmm. and ready to receive the people who were going to be the vocal ministers yeah. that must have been some kind of ministry right you know so yeah and that's really interesting that that and because it's not necess- it's not just that they are doing it. Mm-hmm. It's that they're doing it with an intention yes. to uh, support or bring forth right. this. Right. Yeah. That's interesting that it isn't just the action, right? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you could say, oh, th- that maid service is a ministry. It might be, mm-hmm. but it might not be because it's not right. just what they do. Right. It's, it's how the they yeah. orient themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of that then is knowing full well we can never really completely know another person's intention. Right. Like, who are we to say, are you intentioning enough? Or you right, know? <laughs> right. 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 But it's part of why it's important for us to have relationships with other people in our spiritual community because we are always going to be wondering that. And um, we, uh, we will have a better sense of that if we actually know each other. Spiritual life is a life of commitment to being present to what is and open to the potentiality of the spirit within it, rather than attempting to reshape the world to suit our personal desires or extract from it our self-fulfillment. Lived in community with others, spiritual life requires a similar commitment to remaining with what is and open to the creative potentiality of the spirit within difficult situations. That does not mean we submit passively to destructive, abusive, or unjust situations. But it does mean 
that we labor lovingly with others until we have truly exhausted what loving commitment and reconciliation can do to bring us into unity, trusting that the Spirit of God is working in them as well as in us more deeply and creatively than we are able to. From Listening Spirituality, Volume 2, Corporate Spiritual Practice Among Friends, by Patricia Loring. So, um, uh, you've talked about the fact that you have a support committee. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk about kind of how you got it and what they do. Okay. So shortly after the friend and I had the conversation, maybe like several months after that, um, after we had the conversation where the, this friend told me that they thought I should be doing work around racial equity. I went to what was then Ministry and Council for our meeting and said, I, I need to test this with you. I can't remember if it took two meetings or one meeting, but eventually the Ministry and Council said, yes, we think this is a leading. We think you should have a support committee. And they sent it, the, the request to nominate a committee to provide a support committee. And the nominating committee provided me with a support committee of people who mostly didn't come to meeting very often, but who they thought would be really interested in this issue. Mm. And so I met with them for a couple of years. And it was hard because what I was looking for was some way to connect my spiritual life and understanding with some really secular work. So I, at that point, wasn't traveling for friends much. I was doing work in the community. Mm. And the people who were on my support committee didn't have much of a grounding in Quakerism and weren't necessarily very connected to showing up for meeting for worship every week. And I it just felt more and more disconnected. And eventually that committee was laid down Mm -hmm. and I still felt like I needed to be supported in that work. And in talking to Becky Phipps, who had just joined our meeting recently and was looking for a support committee. And we were talking, she wanted me to be on her committee. I was really hoping she'd be on my committee. We were, like overwhelmed with meetings and then we thought we could have a mutual committee and so we did and so that has been the committee which we're kind of toying with like is support committee even really the right term like perhaps it should be anchor committee perhaps it should be accountability committee i don't know um but because support sounds a little bit more like therapy but anyway, that has been our committee. I think it's been meeting for 12 or 13 years. We check in regularly with the people who are on it to say, All right, we, did, we did not intend for you to sign up for 12 or 13 years, you know, but people seem to want to keep meeting with us. Uh, it's been really 
incredibly helpful in deepening my understanding of how the various ways that I'm led to do the work I do. And also it's been really helpful for me to feel like there are these people who make the time to show up and hear about this work almost monthly. And I need to be accountable to them. Like I don't want to waste their time and energy. Mm. Even now, all these years later, as I am driving to those meetings, there is this part of me that's always feeling like, you know, can I really be asking this of them again this month? Mm. You know, I mean, I go through that. And when I sit on other su support committees, other committees that support ministry, I hear other people talk about that. And I think, oh, but it's such a gift for me, you know? But when it's me going, I feel all of that, like, Am I really worthy? And, you know, it's hard for me to hold on to the fact that it's not about me, it's about the work. And so, and that's really instructive too. You know, it's really useful for me to have those, those same moments and, and periods of uh, stressing with my failings, you know, wrestling with my failings that everybody else does. What's the relationship between that work uh -huh. and the meeting? It depends a little bit on which piece of work we're talking about, but um, some of the work I do, there's a direct line from the meeting to the work, particularly when I'm traveling amongst friends. I feel like there uh, I am bringing, part of what I'm bringing is Fresh Pond Meeting. Some of the work I do is in, you know, more secular settings. It's like, and, and then I feel like I'm still bringing the meeting, but it's more uh, the ground I'm standing on kind of than something I'm really presenting. And I always feel as though I am bringing the people on my committee with mm -hmm. me. And they are part of the meeting. Yeah. So there's a real connection. So um, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you about the way that I think mm -hmm. about this. You tell me if this matches your experience. Um, so I tend to think that if a meeting has, for example, social concerns committee, people understand that the work that that committee is mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. is on behalf and in service mm -hmm. to the full body, mm -hmm. right? It's not like there's a bunch of social concerns people who are doing it for themselves. Sometimes it happens that way, mm -hmm. but even when it does, people presume that the labor that they're doing in their meetings and the carrying out of their activities is in fact for that meeting, not just for the members of that mm -hmm. meeting. And I think in the most healthy way possible, that's also how people think about anchor committees. That the work being done there is for the body. Mm -hmm. um, because it isn't just about um, Melody, but the work that Melody is doing is the work that this body is doing. Mm -hmm. Just like the Peace and Social Concerns Committee isn't meeting for the Peace and Social Concerns Committee, 
Neither is Melody's support group meeting just for Melody or Melody's support group. Rarely, I think, do we actually think of it that way, though. But but I think it's a very similar... Like, those committees of support and accountability are part of the work of the full body. Um, so what do you... What do you does that... I, I agree with you, and I think that our meeting is not in that same place, actually. Oh, no. So... So I feel like that's a sort of aspirational yeah, yeah, place yeah, yeah. Um, because I think that in some ways our meeting actually does see the work of committees as for those people on those committees. And, uh, and I see that as a really important piece of the work of ministry and worship in the next year or two to um, think about how do we, how do we, Name and support ministry at Fresh Pond is partly about what is the work of the whole meeting and how is that related to the individuals carrying various pieces of ministry. So we're kind of coming into the home stretch here. And one of the things that um, is often challenging for folks to talk about, which is one of the reasons we want to talk about it, money. Uh Um, And I heard... Just so this is a testing question. I heard you say when you first had your support committee assembled, part of the disconnect was you were asking for um, accountability to your professional occupation, which you felt led into in a spiritual way. And the committee was appointed just because they, they had an interest in the same topic of as the work and what you were looking for was spiritual connection with that work is that is that right Mm, so part of what i was looking for was how to connect my understanding of what my work should be and the fact that for the most part that didn't line up with what i could get paid to do okay so i have always always struggled with the fact that when i travel amongst friends most people expect me to show up for free and uh, and that has not always been possible. There have been times in my life when that totally limited where I could go and what I could do because I couldn't afford to do that. I'm, you know, we had three kids. Right at the moment, I am in a position where I do get paid for what I do. I would love to retire <laughs> from the from the current job I have. But I can't really afford to do that because I'm not ready to stop working. I just, uh, I could do more and different kinds of work if there was some way to get paid for that. So I feel like, and I feel like the, the assumption a lot of people, not just Quakers, but a lot of people make about doing God's work is that it's not really as legitimate if you have to get paid for it. And I have a really hard time with that. I think that uh, it really limits who gets to do the work. And we are all poorer for that. Mm-hmm. And I wish we could figure something else out. Mm-hmm. I wish we could figure out how to get people health insurance. You know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So I could do another hour on that. Just that yeah. yeah, It's really interesting. One of those, I can't remember for the life of me who told this to me, but... Um, uh, I, I often kind of cynically kind of report this little anecdote, which is that based on the current structure within Friends, 
Um, it appears as if God only calls people into service um, before they have children and after they've mm-hmm. retired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. yes. For, for most people. I mean, yeah. obviously that's not true for everybody. But like, so either that's what we, we all, either we think that there's a gap of <laughs> leadings between 30 and 65. Yep. Or our structures are set up wrong right. so that we don't actually know how to support people between 30 and 65. Right. And God mostly only calls white people. And if, if uh, people with children are called, it's only if they have a spouse and a good support network at home. Yeah. And so you know, I'm inferring there that part part of what um, is a challenge to you is the ways in which our practices are bound up in privilege. Yes, completely. And um, so, could you could you say more about that? I mean, if you feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what I want to say because again, I I think. I think our whole, the whole religious society of friends in the United States in FGC meetings. Okay. So those, that's sort of the context I know the best. The whole context there is bound up in privilege in a lot of ways. And so So the, so the challenge is how to be loving and tender community with each other and see a different way and what the fruits of that could be if we could live into some different way of supporting and understanding ministry. I think there's so much we could get from that. And there are so many pieces of that model that are invisibly problematic at the moment. So many assumptions we make about what ministry is and how how we know it and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and then therefore the kinds of uh, people that do it yes yes so uh, uh, we you've I think I've said this already one way but I want to kind of come at it in another way um, so you yourself have felt um I heard a lot of gratitude in regards to the ability to to have the thing that allows you to pay your bills, and mm-hmm. have raised your children, be something that you felt led to, mm-hmm. and also have a desire or, or, or a hope or a yearning for ways in which some of the other work you also feel called to could somehow be part of a life that is a financially viable kind of life. So, yes. I heard that from you, and but you've been able to do it to some degree. Yes. Um, what would you say to someone um, who comes to you and says, "Melody, you know, uh, I've heard that you're someone who is, uh, you know, striving to be faithful and 
does work that they feel is led by the divine and you get paid for it. And um, I really feel led to X, Y, and Z, but there's no way it's going to make any money. Like, what do I do? Um, like, what, what do we say to that person? Every young person in my life at the moment. Um, so what do we say? I, to I think people? what I say to those people is, you know, um, first of all, I would want to know more about what it is they, they feel led to. In my experience, there have been options. And part of having the support of other people helped me see some of the options. So sometimes it was about, yeah, you can't do that thing right now. But sometimes it was about, well, the way you're imagining doing it isn't the only way, and here's some other way you could do that. Sometimes it's been about like doing work that wasn't the exact work I was led to so that I could do that other work, but I still was getting paid, you know? So, so and, and sometimes it's about thinking like, the big picture and what are your goals? You know, my kids are young adults now and they and a number of their friends are really struggling with how are they going to make a life that's satisfying and do the work that they feel like they are meant to do and, you know, will they ever be able to buy a house? You know, like, will they ever be able to, like, have children and not worry about every single bill uh, you know those are like things everybody has to figure out yeah. there are ways to figure those things out and it doesn't always work out the way you thought it would and some of it's about finding community because you can't do it on your own and you know all that it's complicated the 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 piece is that money is kind of a stand-in, I mean, I guess as it is in many places, for discussions around power and, and privilege, um, right? That who is it that gets to have the, quote, luxury to be doing public ministry? It's the people who can pay for it. And what's interesting, I think, within the Religious Society of Friends, historically, um, we have precedent for that, right? I mean, uh, in uh, Necessary Qualifications for Gospel Ministry, Samuel Bonus um, writes that kind of one of the ways that they know that ministry is mature is that the minister uh, finds a competency, which is like shoemaking or, you know, whatever. Tailoring in the case of John Woolman. Tailoring, right? But of course, that raises the question, does that mean, what about what happens when we have systemic racism and or classism? such that certain groups of peoples are demonstrably less likely to be employed mm -hmm. because of oppressive systems, mm -hmm. because of their l l higher rate of unemployment, do we think God abandons them in terms of doling out gifts of ministry? That seems like a pretty slipshod argument. And yet, and yet because we don't really support ministry in any kind of robust way, there's the kind of unintended implications of that. And um, Melody, I mean, I, obviously I'm all riled up about it because I agree, but, um, you know, Melody certainly has some of these same issues with it. Right. And um, I think the line that she says where she notices that 
there's this pervasive view that um, the work of the work of ministry or the work of God is somehow not legitimate if people are being paid for it. That 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 um, it's about privilege and also. Um, I sometimes wonder what the implications of that view, and it, I agree that it is pervasive, what the implications of that view are in terms of the ways that we don't take the work seriously. And if we we don't um, think that it could, to be professional, to be paid is to be professional. So if you are, if your ministry is your profession and you might train or get better at it, that somehow it's not some spontaneous movement of the spirit and lacks a, a kind of authenticity. I think I have seen places where relying simply on spontaneous movement of the spirit and not solid training can do damage, especially in the realms of, of pastoral care. Um, and, and, God works in so many ways. That divine energy that she talks about works in so many mysterious ways. Could it not be that the divine energy works in the sort of training and the honing of someone's gifts in such a way that they're used efficiently and effectively? Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of like a, a religious or theological kind of lens on this. And I think that that's fine. But I also think that we can just kind of slap on an economic or sociological one and go, it isn't 1670. And even if it, well, it's not, it's not, it's not 1670. Right. And so we don't have those same power structures in place. Um, you know, we, we have this language hireling minister, which is kind of this pejorative, oh, you take money for ministry, you must be a faker, right? Because, because we know George Fox had um, a real beef uh, uh, a testimony against professors, right? Right. People who profess. The irony there is that that's me, right? That I'm a professor of theology at times, right? I get paid, right? Hired. I'm a hireling. I'm like the worst of the worst, right? I'm a hireling minister who gets paid to profess ministry, right? So Fox is explicitly kind of calls that out. I think some people for example, would take issue with the fact that New England Yearly Meeting has this legacy fund and it pays people to do things. And I, I think that, you know, that's not worth hiding from, right? There are people out there who believe the fact that right now, as I'm recording this, somewhere we're keeping track of the work it takes us to do it and we'll be compensated somehow devalues the work or um, maybe makes us suspect. Hmm. And I think it's worth naming that and saying, yeah. um, to the degree that that matters to us, imagine how much more it matters to people that have less access to networks, less access to funds, less access to kind of professional um, backgrounds and histories and resumes, and yet nonetheless are being given gifts of ministry to live in the world. How are we supporting those people? Uh, it's it's very hard for me to, to process. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the term hireling ministry, and one of the ways in which I've understood that to be at work is that if there is not a 
companion and a, an accompanied continued testing of what the ministry is and, and committee supporting it, if the person's identity and um, ability to put food on the table for their family gets bound up with um, needing that ministry, then there's a tendency to think that that, that person when the ministry, when the leading is laid down, when it goes away, when it's time, time to move on to something else, that they won't, they'll continue in that role um, beyond when there's life. Yeah. That, because they need it to survive. I think of the very faithful example of Ruth and Bradley in New York yearly meeting, who was lifted up from Poplar Ridge Friends Meeting to be a a minister to be the pastor of that meeting. And she continually asked her committee, is this still alive? Am I still supposed to do this? Am I still your pastor? As opposed to, I need this paycheck to kind of pay my bills, so I must clearly still have the leading. Right, right. So that she she stepped out of that role long before what one would consider traditional retirement age and went on to do something else because the leading no longer had life. Her yeah. community was was ready for something different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very faithful way to think about this. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little uh, scripture-y, right? Because this hireling thing comes from, uh, from comes to us from Fox. Right. But it comes to us from Fox from John, uh, the book of John uh, 10. He says, uh, 10, 11 through 13, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus talking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. So like what we see here, I think, and, you know, that little scriptural piece, which is where we know Fox is coming from, is that the problem, like, it isn't so much that the hired hand was hired so much as the fact that the hired hand's heart wasn't really into caring for the flock. It was like a way to earn money, right? I think, and it, it probably this is bias, or maybe this is bias, because I'm someone who sometimes earns money for doing work for the Religious Society of Friends, but uh, it seems like what Friends were opposed to is that people were going through the motions of caring, but didn't actually carry the concern, right? So putting it another way, I wonder if Fox wasn't opposed to ministry or ministers so much as to people who were play-acting at ministry for a paycheck. Right, and especially, I'm thinking in the context of the 17th century when the person who might, come into that role of being minister didn't come into that role necessarily because they had gifts. It's because of the birth order and gender that they had. They were the, they were the second son in a family. You mean in the church of England, what happened? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the first son gets all the land. The second son becomes a minister. The women don't get anything. Right. So that what Fox might was kind of maybe railing against was that kind of practice that was common in the Church of England. But I think that the real issues of power, privilege, 
and then underneath it, the, the spiritual implications of us not knowing how to consistently lift up ministry among people who don't have financial means is a problem, and it's a stumbling block for the Religious Society of Friends in general in the unprogrammed traditions. I agree. And I mentioned that that piece about Fox and the 17th century and inherited structures because what what Fox did rail against in in all kinds of ways was forms without power. And to the extent that structures are forms that don't have power and confine us from really listening to to, to leadings or to the to that divine energy god that Melody talks about if we adhere simply to formal definitions and this kind of gets all the way around to the beginning of this interview with with Melody if she had just accepted that the definition she'd been handed of god was it and so she just was not a religious person and she was going to put all that stuff in a box and she was going to pursue a purely secular life and she hadn't kept questioning and she hadn't kept listening and she hadn't come to the table and been willing to expand the definition or concept of what God is, then the her faithful witness to the movement of that divine energy would have been lost to us. I'm Christina Keefe Perry. And I'm Khaled Keefe Perry. And you're listening to On Carrying a Concern, Stories of Friends Called Into Service. We're able to do this because of the oversight of Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting, of New England Yearly Meeting. We're also able to do this because of the support of the Legacy Gift Fund of New England Yearly Meeting. The Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund. And the support of Salem Quarterly Meeting. We also want to give our special thanks out to all the artists at the Blue Dot Sessions for use of their music from the albums Marisala and Piano Mover. We really love what you all are doing out there and are appreciative of it. We'll be back next week with another story of friends following Leading Into Service. So check it out on Friday afternoon. You can subscribe via ocacshow.org on Google Play or in iTunes. And if you missed episodes or want to get some information on the background of this project, you should also go to ocacshow.org. There's all kinds of information there. If you've got questions and want to shoot them towards us, you can hit us up on Twitter at OCAC Show or through the contact page on OCACshow.org. We'll do a little uh, kind of responding to listener mail at the front if we get some stuff. So let us know through those places or Facebook, and um, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening.